Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have promised that you will never leave nor forsake us. Uh, therefore, we can say that you are our God and uh, what, what can man do to me? So we thank you for that type of confidence and commitment that you have uh, toward us, your people. Lord, we pray you would remind us of that often. And we thank you for your word that we'll be studying tonight. Uh, some of these amazing statements that the Lord Jesus has made, his oneness with you, Father, and uh, his equality with you, uh, that you would uh, join yourself to our human nature. We thank you for the incarnation. We help. We ask that you would help us more deeply appreciate how that great act is so central to our salvation. Lord, we're grieved that many are ashamed of the doctrine, the doctrine of the virgin birth, and uh, a number of these things, Lord. Uh, help us never be ashamed of you or your works or your word. That, that is our prayer. Help us instruct our children and plant the seed, and we pray that you would water that. Lord, we pray for the outreach of us as a church, that, that we would not be slack or fearful, that we would pursue every opportunity you give us and that you would give us more, and uh, we would cross those barriers and, and, and speak of you to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are moved into doing some theology, so to say, uh, as we're toward at the end of the Gospels, and we've been doing that all along. We, we go through and study the history in detail. That helps us, but at each stage of the Lord's public ministry, there's key theological matters that are coming up, and uh, Jesus doesn't expound in great length on many of the fundamental doctrines, but he plants the seeds, I believe, for all of them. I think every major doctrine relating to our salvation, the seeds are, have been planted in, in Jesus' teaching. And um, so we're, we're looking at some of those. And last, um, last Wednesday, we were looking at what I've called these uh, high, high Christological statements meaning a high view of Jesus, meaning Jesus is much more than just a man. He's much more than just a great teacher, and he's much more than a rabbi, and he's much greater than the greatest of prophets, and he's much greater than angels, and, and actually he is the Son of God, and he has equality in his, the essence of his nature is such that he has equality with God. The fullness of the Godhead, probably, probably one of the greatest texts in the New Testament that sums it up so well. You know the text I'm talking about? I started to quote it a little bit. I think I'll throw it up here on the screen. You know, the, do you, know you should all know this text about the deity and the humanity of Christ. If there's one text that says it in one place so briefly, do you know which text that is? You got it. 
and, and you didn't get that because you saw me typing in Colossians 2.9 up here or because you had your Bible open, Jack. You, you had that because you knew that text. This is the one I would vote for, is Colossians 2.9. For in him, Jesus, what, dwells all the fullness, what, of the Godhead bodily. That, that's it. In one in how many words is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven words in English, fewer than that in Greek. All the fullness of the deity or of Godhead. That means everything that makes God God, it dwells in Christ bodily. And this is his human nature. So uh, okay, we got Okay, we got to Let's look at the challenger here. Philippians two six, a dueling text. We got more than one. Okay, Philippians two and verse six. Yeah, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Okay, so here we have the deity being in the form of God and here, of course, and what? And coming in the likeness of men. So it's a tie, okay? <laughs> we'll have a tie between those statements. So we're, we're looking at some of those statements in, in the Gospels. So uh, we did John, um, uh, I and the Father are one. Let's move on tonight to Isaiah seeing Christ's glory. This is an interesting passage, not as well known. In John chapter chapter 12, around verse 41, backing up here a little bit to verse 37, what's happening here is, uh, John, sorry, John is quoting from Isaiah's vision of Isaiah chapter 6 in this passage. And he's gone to this passage, which is about Israel's hardness. And John is quoting it here in John 12 as an explanation of the hardened unbelief of the Jews. And the passage reads like this, you see, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And it's almost like astounding. How is it possible that in the face of all those miracles, they still did not believe in him? And John is giving an an answer to that question that some people don't like. It's, It's kind of shocking. But then he goes on, that they did not believe in verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which the Lord spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Now, that's not what we're interested in tonight, but it's a passage of judgment is what it is. Okay, It's like the Jewish version of Romans chapter 1, he gave them over. 
And, and, and the Thessalonian passage where it says, God will send upon them strong delusion that they would not believe the truth and be saved. It's in that category of passages. But our interest here tonight is this verse. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. What is John saying? John says, uh, the, the, who is the him in verse 41? Who is the him in verse 41? These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's Jesus. The his and the him is Jesus. Right, right. So, so John is saying the glory that Isaiah saw in that Isaiah 6 vision is the glory of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God. That's what John is saying. The pre, the, that glory in that Isaiah vision, he saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Son of God. So, that glory, of course, which, which was the glory of Yahweh, high and lifted up, is the glory of the pre-incarnate Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus. So, if verse 41 appeared by itself in this gospel, we might struggle to actually conclude that John really meant that, if this was the only verse like this in the gospel, that he really meant that the glory seen by Isaiah was the glory of Jesus prior to his incarnation. But John's statement is not surprising in the context of other statements throughout his gospel, is it? You know, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, what? And the Word was God. Okay, John 1.14, the Word, what? Became flesh... And what? We beheld his glory. Okay? And then John 8, 58, Before Abraham was, I am. Uh, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Uh, John 13, 19, we're going to look at here tonight. John 20, 28, Thomas says, Behold my Lord and my God. So when we see this text in the midst of the context of the Gospel of John, it doesn't surprise us. This this is a text about Jesus, an incarnated Son of God, in, in the bodily humanity of Jesus, um, is God in human flesh. And, and so that text needs, you know, needs, to be, needs, to be gra- needs to be grappled with. Are, are you, guys, you guys with me? You, yeah, you could read Isaiah six if you're not if you're not familiar with that. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in in that uh, what some year of uh, Uzziah's reign. Um, but the Gospels are not reluctant to give an equality to the Son of God equal with God, and and this is one of those passages that does that. So, um, okay. Any any thoughts or contributions about about this one?
Okay. All right, let's go on to another text. Um, oh, wait a minute. I got to look at my notes here. John really does. John really does understand Jesus as Yahweh revealing his glory to us. And John chapter 1, verse 18 could be a summary of John's gospel. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus, he has made him known. What's that? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that one's up there. <laughs> he has made him known. And and you see, so what we're seeing when Isaiah's vision is about the glory of God, and John chapter 1 verse 18 says that, the only begotten God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made that invisible God known. See, those texts go together. What, what John is saying in Isaiah 12, 41 is perfectly consistent with John 1, 18. Okay. And uh, so it... It works. Um, and I think it fits kind of like hand and glove. Uh, those texts fit hand and glove. So, okay. So let's go on to another one. Uh, Jesus says, I am in John chapter 13, verse 19, is another one of those high Christological statements. May not be obvious at first, but... I think I can make it obvious. John 13, verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. Uh, and he's talking about Judas there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is after the foot washing. Yeah, this is after the foot washing. And he has to exclude Judas from from what he has said. That's what's going on here. Do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And then we have this statement. Now I tell you, I, now I tell you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. So we've got to work on this one a little bit. And what Jesus is telling them before it comes to pass is that he will be betrayed. So before we get into the high Christology here, there's obviously a practical context. The practical context is he's trying to reassure the disciples that him being, him being arrested, him being betrayed and arrested and crucified is not the end. And he's trying to reassure them. And, and, and the way he's going to reassure them is, now I'm telling you before it happens that I'm going to be betrayed. So that when it comes to pass, what? You may believe that I am. So he's trying to ground their faith that he is in control. <laughs> 
He knows what's happening. He's in control. He's telling them before it comes to pass. And all of that, of course, is going to, maybe not at this moment, but after the resurrection, all of that's going to build their faith. Jesus is in control. And he's telling them, I'm going to be betrayed. Uh, And I'm telling you this before it comes to pass that you may believe I am. Now, what is significant here is this idea, this concept of being able to predict the future in the Old Testament Who alone is able to do that? God or Yahweh. Not only is he the only one that can do that, he taunts the idols, and one of the the marks of the idols is they cannot do that. And Yahweh makes fun of the idols who cannot say what is to come. So it is a mark of divinity to be able to correctly predict the future. That's a mark of a true, the true deity versus false gods is the ability to tell you before it comes to pass. That language, and we're going to go to the Isaiah passages here in a moment, even the language is is similar to the language in Isaiah. So let's let's look at a couple of those passages. We'll start in Isaiah 41, uh, 41 verse, uh, verse 23. And this chapter of 41 is the Lord through the prophet is making fun of the false gods. He's ridiculing the false gods. And he's mentioning all the things that they can't do. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. See, that's the challenge. Can they do that? Can they do this? No, that's the challenge. prophet challenges all of those that worship these false gods to predict the future. Show the things that are to come after that we may know. Notice what? That we may know you are gods. Yes, do evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Now, Jesus is saying, I am doing this so that you, so that when it does come to pass, you might believe in me. And that challenge is just as true today as it was when Jesus made it that evening. Jesus has done this repeatedly, and your faith is to be bolstered and grounded up because of that, right? Now, in the New Testament, it's not Yahweh saying that. It's Jesus saying that. 
So let's look at uh, just a few other Isaiah statements. 41, 23, 48, 48, 5. Again, God is declaring his one and only uniqueness. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. Look at that. Before it came to pass, that's the language used in, on Jesus' lips. I am now, I'm telling you what? Before it comes to pass. Before it come before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say, what? My idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. So um, that's a high Christology statement in John chapter 13, uh, verse 19. Uh, 42, Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And there's a um, ellipsis there. The former things which I have predicted <laughs> have come to pass. Okay, what, form, what former things? The former things that Yahweh and his prophets have predicted. Those former things have come to pass. And new things I declare, and here it is, before they spring forth, what? I tell you of them. Okay, so now let's go back to John 13, verse 19. So why didn't Jesus just end the statement? Now I tell you before it comes to pass, Pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe, period. <laughs> Why didn't he just end there? Okay. Now, he does kind of do that in chapter 14, verse 29, but, but he doesn't just say that. He adds that you may believe something very specific, that I am. So this whole discussion that we had back in John 8, do we supply a he or not? You notice it's in italics, and that's my only complaint against the ESV Bible, (laughs) is they do not put some of these things in italics that really are a translational issue. So obviously, if you leave out the he... We're, we're beginning, then we're in the category of John uh, 8.58, before Abraham was, I am, right? That Jesus is make, uh, uh, making an assertion to um, his godhood, uh, godhood. Um, so there are commentators that will argue this either way. You know, if, if there is to be a predicate, we, we, we talked a lot about that, what is it? You know, the, it, it could mean I am who I've claimed to be. Okay, that, that's you know, or I am the Messiah. You know, e- either way, it's high Christology. Okay, whether it's the, a proof of the deity of Christ or not, but either way, it's high Christology. As a minimum, at a minimum, it means I am the Messiah. At a minimum, it's got to mean that at least. Okay, but it may mean it may mean more than that. Okay, so 
the other place where he says this is in 14.29. And here he doesn't put the I am on here. Now, I, and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Okay. But back in 13, he, he does in, include the, the I am statement. So you cannot reduce Jesus to you know, non-Messianic, it's just great, I mean, or you just can't do that. Um, Well, what you have to do is you have to cut all these statements out of the Gospels. And that's what what Protestant liberal theology does. They say Jesus never said any of this. I mean, that's that's how they deal with it. Uh, uh, So, okay, so... Um, yeah, John fourteen twenty nine. I think should be understood in the in this light as John thirteen nineteen. Anybody a comment a comment or question on on this one? Okay, I think you oh you weren't here last week. Um, this list of high Christological statements we're going here is only a partial list because we did. Earlier in the Gospels, back uh, back during the Great Galilean Ministry, we also stopped and pulled out high Christological statements. So, if you want to get them all, you got to combine this chapter with Chapter Four in these notes. If you want to get all the high Christological statements together, just go back to Chapter Four. You you probably don't have your notes from back then, but but I could send those to you. So we're just doing the ones here tonight. And last week, the ones that we didn't do back there in chapter four. See, it's hard not to go back to those <laughs> because those are nice to see as well. Okay, well, uh, let's let's go to another one, uh, John fourteen verse one. Uh, Jesus, the object of faith. Uh, John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Uh, let's talk about the translation of this text a little bit. Both, both of these phrases, you believe in God, believe also in me, both of those phrases can be translated either as indicatives, and what that means, descript- descriptive. Or they can be translated as imperatives, which means command. Okay. Now, what the New King James translation did is they translated the first part as an indicative. You see, you believe in God, describing what is. You believe in God. And they translated the second part as an imperative, a command, believe also in me. So, this you can't solve this by grammar okay they they can legitimately be translated as indicatives or imperatives okay so um uh let me let me get this i prefer the translations which translate both passages as commands and the reason is their anxiety does not only display a lack of believing in Jesus, 
their anxiety is displaying a lack of believing in God. Okay? And so uh, you'll see the ESV translated them both as imperatives, right? Believe in God. Not you believe in God. Believe in God, that's a command. Believe also in me. So here, that's a translation where they're both imperatives. Are are you with me? You, You see what I'm saying? Uh, you can translate either way. New American Standard did that. Believe in God, believe also in me. But it's interesting, the New English translation, I was surprised they didn't do that. They did it as an indicative. You believe in God, uh, believe also in me. Okay, there's the command, and here's, here's a description. But I'm sure if you read footnote two, <laughs> I didn't look at it, but I'm 95% sure if you read footnote two, it's going to say it could be translated the other way. But uh, th- they seem to be not believing in God or Jesus at this point, which is why they are so troubled. Now, that, none of that has any th- bearing on the high Christology in the passage, but I just wanted you to understand that. Uh, so, Jesus exhorts them, believe in God, and he exhorts them, believe also in me. So, in relation to high Christology, Jesus, Jesus is the revelation of God to us, and he is so closely related to God, as he himself has claimed, that he too should be our object of faith. Believe also in me. Not that he can be our object of faith, but that he should be our object of faith. Equal to God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. So he should be our object of faith just as God should be our object of faith. That is quite a statement. In the same way that God is the object of faith, Jesus is the object of faith. So there's an assumed equality between God and Jesus as being the object of our faith. No prophet, angel, or apostle has ever set them forth themselves as the object of faith equivalent with God. I mean, you can see why. <laughs> because God exclusively is to be the object of our faith. And there's no prophet or angel or apostle who has ever set forth themselves as the object of faith for us equivalent to God. I'm, I'm just repeating myself, but Richard, do you have a... Okay. You, you, you see the point? So Jesus, this kind of stuff just come. Jesus just speaks this kind of stuff. And it's right. Who do you think you are? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? 
And just when Jesus said, you know, man, your sins are forgiven, the same type of thing. Jesus just nonchalantly, I don't know if that's the right word, but, but Jesus just speaks it like normal. You know, man, your sins are forgiven. And then they, everybody, all the scribes and the Pharisees start grumbling by, by saying, who, you know, who does he think he is? None can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sins. Say, and they were correct. They were correct in that theology that only God can forgive sins. But they were not correct in who they thought Jesus really was. And this is the same type of thing when Jesus just makes this statement. Believe in God, believe also in me. So this is high, high Christology, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> Any any comment or or question? I mean, these you know these are not all that difficult to understand. I mean, sometimes when we're first reading the Bible, we need that kind of stuff pointed out to us. But once it's pointed out, it's yeah. <laughs> Who does Jesus think he is? And that is the question, right? Who do you say the Son of Man is? <laughs> so. That's the big gospel question. Everything flows from that. Okay? All right. We got another one. And um, uh, I love this one. I like them all. I love them all. (laughs) Right? What can you say? Uh, uh, God's Son is altogether uh, magnificent. Uh, I I wish I had a better command of the English language. You know, I, I know some superlatives, but not enough. The magnificent, spectacular, awesome—that's more contemporary. Uh, what, what are what are what are what are contemporary expressions that are superlatives? Superlatives like magnificent or 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 spectacular, wonderful. Yeah, extraordinary. extraordinary. Awesome. What you know, we gotta communicate to the younger generation. So we awesome. Yeah. Valid. What's that? Valid. That's valid. Valid? Yeah. Really? See, I'm ignorant of that. That doesn't sound very superlative to me, but does that mean like what does it mean? What does valid mean in, in our younger culture? It's like um it's true. It's it's the right word. Oh. Okay. Well that's that's like the meaning of the word. So Valid, yeah. This is this is true. Okay, Je- Jesus is valid, but you got to say it with some emotion, right? Man, this guy is valid, right? That's how you got to say it, right? Maybe you could rap it out, right? That could be a song. Wouldn't that be a great rap song? It would be the title. Jesus is valid. That would be a great rap song. You know, it would be. I got to get some of the royalties, okay? So, I mean, if it gets if it gets copyrighted, you know, then 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 I'm I I get some of the royalties on that, okay? So, on a practical way, no, I think we as believers should know the superlatives. We should learn them, and we should use them, especially about Jesus. I mean, I think we should practice our speech that way. You know, people use more superlatives about their 
basketball team than they use about the Lord. You know, and, and, and sometimes I feel a little jealous about those terms, how I use them myself, that, that, that I tend to try to reserve some of those only for, only for the Lord, you know. But. So I, since you made that point, I will say that when I was younger, I talked to someone that did a study of the word awe and awesome. Oh. They came up that that was a strictly a word translated that was only reserved for God alone initially. Really? In other words, you can never properly use it in societal thought right. or, or uh, uh, yeah. you know, in, in society yeah. unless you were talking about God in early English. That's very interesting. Now, don't toss it back to me. <laughs> interesting. Okay, well, we're going to look at a passage that is totally awesome <laughs> about Jesus in this next passage. And it's Jesus' uh, uh, seeing Jesus is seeing the Father, uh, interacting, Jesus interacting with Philip. And so we're down to John 14, verse 7. Uh, Jesus has made the other startling statement, of course, in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way to Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, well, that's another high Christology statement. Uh, I didn't put it in here. But it is, of course, that he's claiming he is the only one that comes, the only way to the invisible, eternal Father is through this man, Jesus. The only way. So that obviously is high Christology too. But what I have in mind more is verse 7 going down. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And and Jesus there is speaking to Thomas and the other disciples. He's speaking to the group there. This is a you. This is a you plural. So if if you guys had known me, you would have known my Father also. This is setting up this amazing statement. And from now on, you know him, and have seen him. Okay. Philip said to him, "Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient." For us. He obviously blew off what Jesus said in verse 7. What did Jesus say in verse 7? You have seen him, right? (laughs) Jesus already, Jesus has told Philip in verse 7, you would have known my father, and from now on you know my father, and have seen my father. And then Philip just turns around and says, show us the Father. Jesus could have said, Philip, I've just told you you have seen the, seen the Father. So he just blows right over that. And what does Philip say? Lord, show us the Father. I, Jesus is very patient. So Philip says, show us the Father, and it is, it is sufficient for us. And... It's hard not to exegete a little bit. Uh, show us the Father is sufficient for us. Philip is saying, Philip thinks he's reasonable. Okay? Philip thinks his request is, is very reasonable. You know, that, that, that he hasn't figured it out yet. Jesus, you haven't given us enough. Well, his request really isn't that reasonable, but Jesus is gracious. Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus gives a gentle rebuke. 
in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? That's a gentle rebuke, isn't it? It sure is. It's like, boy, you guys are slow. <laughs> it, that's what it is. Have I been with you so long? <laughs> and you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So, Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? There's your high Christology. Jesus is saying, I have accurately and faithfully revealed the invisible God to you. All this time I've been with you, you have been seeing none other than the invisible God who no man can see. You've been seeing the Father for three years because you've been seeing me. Now that's a high Christological claim, isn't it? Jesus is claiming that he is the accurate, he has accurately the glory of God. We have seen his glory. Isaiah, the glory high and lifted up. He has shown us the Father. He's the fullest, completest, better than anything in the Old Testament, revelation of the Father. And Philip, you should have figured that out by now. And if we haven't figured it out, we need to figure it out. God is knowable because He incarnated Himself in the Son of God to reveal Himself to us. And nobody's going to be able to say, well, I didn't know. It wasn't very clear to me. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. Light has poured down and come in. Very clear. So... Uh, so this, of course, is is high Christology. Now, <clears throat> um, you can also go to Matthew eleven twenty six twenty five through twenty six and see this same same idea. Now, think think for a moment about all the Old Testament theophanies in regard to knowing the Father. How do any of them, or even all of them combined, compare to reading the Gospels and the Epistles regarding the Lord Jesus as the means of knowing God? They don't compare. They are all shadowy at best. All of those theophanies, all of that Old Testament revelation does not compare to the revelation that God gave in His Son, which we have in the Gospels and in the letters. It doesn't compare. How does a burning bush, a pillar cloud over the tent of meeting, a fiery cloud at night, Moses seeing God's back, compare? 
How do all those things compare to what John says in chapter 1, verse 14? The Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. Those things don't even compare. It's Mo- Moses gets to see God's back. And what does Paul write? We see the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now that's high Christology. Um, How does fire from heaven burning up a carcass of a sacrificed bull on the altar compare to Jesus on a cross? It doesn't compare. No. It doesn't. That's why Jesus says, of prophets born of women, who is the greatest? John the Baptist. And what else did Jesus say in the rest of that? Close. Jack? He who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. What is Jesus talking about in this comparison between the person who is least in the kingdom of heaven and who's greater okay, than John the Baptist? What, what is he comparing between the two? What's that? Yeah, how much he knows. Revelation. The, the revelation that the least saint in the kingdom has is greater than the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. And the, and the New Testament will bear that out. Peter says that. They were serving us. We have the greater revelation of God. We know God. The, the least person in the kingdom knows has a vision and knows God better than the greatest prophet in the old. I believe that with all my heart. Because we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I'll tell you this. um, God has chosen to reveal Himself in the way he desires to reveal himself. And I find that very comforting. Because the eternal, invisible, infinite, fearful God has said, this is how I desire to reveal myself to Dan Cafessi. In my son. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I get goosebumps. That is so wonderful. It just is. Look at this Corinthian passage. It's not in, it's not in the notes, but uh, it's Second Corinthians. I think it's Second Corinthians 4. Mm. Yeah, look at this. <clears throat> yeah. We got, we got to read the whole thing. Let's start at verse 1. 
Therefore, since we have this ministry, he's talking about the ministry of the new covenant. Okay, God has made us ministers of the new covenant. And the big thing about the new covenant is this revelation issue. Okay, the clarity of the revelation of God in the new covenant compared to the covenant of types and shadows. Therefore, since we have this ministry, uh, <clears throat> as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Amazing that they're all already having these problems. <laughs> when he's writing 2 Corinthians. But what, what do they do? But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. God has heard every word we've preached. <sighs> okay. That's the quality control. If you're teaching and preaching, you can't lose sight of this. Okay. That's how Paul said, we, we, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God of the way we teach and the way we live. That's it's scary, it's scary. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest, they, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is what? The image of God should shine on them. Got it? For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. What? who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God, what? In the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. That is wonderful, okay? Uh, the superlative that, that Thelma mentioned, <laughs> okay? And that's, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel brings to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You know, my pilgrimage, there was a time when I was man-centered. Okay? I was man-centered in my early Christian experience, some. And then there was a season that I became God-centered. But I still hadn't arrived at where I needed to arrive. And then finally, I got to God in Christ centered. I got to God, what, in Christ centered. And and the the way we teach and preach about God needs to take this Christocentric, center regarding the revelation of who God in is and what he is like. And and uh, people respond to God in Christ-centered preaching and sharing 
much better than they do to just God-centered. <laughs> and, and, and that was all good. I, I'd much rather be God-centered than man-centered. That was a lot of progress. But we need to see when we're dealing with Scripture, we don't want to mute these themes. These themes are to be up at 100 decibels. How do we know God? Right here. He is the image of God, and we see him in the face of Jesus Christ. Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you yet don't understand. So, so that is high, high Christology on the lips of Jesus. Um, yeah. Now there's verse 10. We need to talk about verse 10 in John 14. Let's go back there. Verse 10, uh, 14, 10, okay. Now, he makes this other statement. Okay, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? That, I submit to you, is another high Christological statement. And this one isn't as directly clear, but we need to think about this a little bit. Um, Now, what's expressed here is regarding Jesus' relationship with the Father. So how close is that relationship? Now, we already know from John 1.18, that it's close, isn't it? Because the only the 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 one and the one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father, our translations don't translate it that way any longer. But it, it means or in the lap of the Father, it's that term in John one eighteen is trying to express how close Jesus is to the Father, and. He's sitting in the Father's lap. Okay, let me say it that way, okay? No man can see God and live, but Jesus is sitting in the Father's lap. Now, you know, just process that for a while. How close is Jesus? And this statement is one of those closeness statements. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Now, that's not just sitting on His lap. I mean, how do you understand that? I mean, it it, it stretches. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Now, I mean, that would be blasphemy for any of us to say that. But the next statement is even bigger because, because, well, okay, Jesus is in the Father. The Father is really the big one and Jesus is the little one. And Jesus fits inside the Father. But wait a minute, he flips it. Don't you, do you believe that the Father, what, is in me? That's something we need to believe. And that, of course, equips him to be what? The revelation of the Father. See how that works? That's oh, absolutely, yeah. One of our one of our other pieces of high Christology we haven't gotten to yet is the three persons, but 
But uh, so <clears throat> these are he's a, he's a revelation of the Father. He's qualified because of his closeness to the Father. That's the point in John one eighteen. No one's ascended up into heaven. Well, Jesus has been in the lap of the Father. <laughs> okay, in heaven. So. Um, so, you know, when we tell people about Jesus, and, and, and in this culture, in this postmodern culture, when you tell people about Jesus, don't start with the cross. Now, don't stone me. <laughs> but in this culture, when you tell people about Jesus, I would suggest one of the best ways to start is right here. Tell them who he is. Not, don't go to the cross it's all of these concepts that God is knowable and God is interested in humanity and the, the way God has demonstrated his interest, interest in humanity is he's incarnated himself in his son to come down here and show us his glory and have a conversation with us. Just pour on that. Begin to tell them who Jesus is and center on these concepts in the Gospel of John and buttress them up with Paul. Don't talk about sin yet. Talk about knowing the real God so that you can worship the true God. And, And you know what? The Father, Jesus said, the Father has come to seek out a group of worshipers and He's extending an invitation to you to come and worship Him. You see that? That's relational. Our postmodern generation, relational. We're the most relational generation there's ever been. Relationships are important to us. And, and, and we need to have relationship in all of this. And look at this. God is courting you into the most glorious relationship there ever can be that will last into eternity. Okay? That's what's going on. Now, yeah, is sin going to come into that discussion? Of course it's going to come into that discussion. But I would really encourage us to begin with the revelation discussion and God breaking into humanity to, to, to reconciliation. You see, I've been really convicted about this. Over, over my gospel preaching years, I almost never use that word, reconciliation. That's the relational word. Redemption, that's buy them out of slavery. Justification, make them righteous. Propitiation, eliminate God's wrath. And I never mention reconciliation. That's the relationship word in the gospel. And, and Paul says, it's as though God, through us, were beseeching you what? Be reconciled to God. So, so, Anyways, just think about that. How do we, you know, sweetness of speech increases learning. And, 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 and as we preach the gospel, we need to think about that. Not to compromise. I'm not, I'm, I hope you know that I don't mean that. These are major biblical themes. And, and um, 
so anyways, um, where are we? We're, we're, we're talking about verse 10. Yeah, the high Christology that I am, in, I, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And that makes Jesus the one to reveal the Father. That, that's, what, that's what we're talking about here. And, and so in verse 10 there, um, we must understand and believe, okay, we find that language a bit awkward because we don't speak of persons being in each other. And, and uh, the language means at least this much, that the Father and the Son are in the closest possible relationship to each other that, that we can conceive of. You know, the, the language breaks down, you know, in the lap of the Father, or I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. The, 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 we're, we're bumping up against language limitations to express this concept. And, and, and they are in this closest possible relationship, and they are in unity of plan and mind and purpose. They are in this unity. And this unity is expressed in the second part of verse 10, and there's other examples of it in the gospel. You see, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, believe, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. Okay? So what he's telling us in his role as the mediator, he is bringing God's words to us. They are of one mind. The message is coming from the Father, and Jesus is faithful to bring that message to us. I mean, that not that wonderful? <laughs> it just is. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on. Oh, man, it's 10 after. I thought we were going to finish early. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, some of this comes to me anyways. This oneness in 519, 530, 828, this same type of thing, that Jesus is equal with the Father, but he's submitted to the authority of the Father. He's the Son of God, and he's submitted to the authority of the Father. That doesn't make him anything less than the Father. That's just a role in the Trinity, that the Son is subjected to the authority of the Father. And this statement here, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. See that? So, okay, we're, I'll stop. Uh, comments, or, or comments or questions on these things? Okay. Oh, let's pray. Our Father, uh, oh, we are dull dogs, Lord, at times... A dear brother, Lord of mine, years ago would <laughs> would would lament that <laughs> that he felt that way. And Isaac Watts, Lord, expressed it in that great hymn. You know, uh, can uh, can our love be so dim and faint uh, and weak when yours toward us is is so great and and he prayed, Come, uh, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, 
uh, shed abroad in our hearts the Savior's love, and that will kindle ours. So, Lord, we pray that by this study tonight, by, by looking, at, looking at who your wonderful Son is, Lord, and why you sent him, that that would kindle your people, that would kindle us uh, to a greater joy and, and love of you, Lord, um, we don't know what to say. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and this wonderful word that he breathed out to show you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we pray in your blessed name. Amen.